If you were to drive past SpaceX's headquarters near LAX, the only thing that would tell you it's a special place is a rocket booster over a story tall, looming above a courtyard. But if you walk inside, through the lobby, past the coffee table modeled from a rocket part, and head through the doors, past the travel posters for Mars, you'll see SpaceX's past, present, and future hit you all at once. On your right is Mission Control, a room only separated from the rest of the building by glass. Giant screens with live shots of launch pads and rows of desks and computers. Hanging above you, on the ceiling, is one of the company's first Dragon capsules to fly to space. And on your left, a line of 20-something employees snakes around by Mission Control, all of them waiting for the coffee bar. Straight ahead, the rocket factory. Engines being assembled, full-sized rockets being checked and rechecked, nose cones meant to keep satellites safe on their way to orbit. Almost everything happening in this room, in this building, isn't about sending four ordinary people to orbit. It's all really about one specific goal, getting lots and lots of people to Mars. That's actually what people at the highest levels of the company will tell you. Like Benji Reed, the director of human spaceflight. SpaceX's job is to develop the technology to send people to Mars and colonize Mars. I'll bring you behind closed doors at SpaceX to show you how the crew's getting ready for launch through exclusive interviews with employees, a tour of the factory floor, and inside a cockpit simulator training session with Haley, Chris, Cyan, and Jared. You'll learn exactly how these regular civilians have become astronaut ready in less than six months. I'm Miriam Kramer. From Axios, this is How It Happened, The Next Astronauts. Part three, what it takes. NASA is one of SpaceX's biggest customers. But unlike NASA, the company doesn't have to totally work around congressional funding, mandates, and changes of presidential administration. Instead, they can design something upstairs and build it downstairs within a matter of weeks or months. You'll see it is pretty busy out right now. It's lunchtime. And My guide is Vanessa Vanderputten, SpaceX's mission manager for Inspiration4. I mean, if you walk down here an hour from now, something will be different because it is a 24-7 around the clock and it's always changing. Um, Vanessa takes me past 10-foot-tall, sooty engines that had been test-fired in Texas and sent back here for integration. We stroll by huge ovens used to make fancy, extremely strong plastics, and we pass new Falcon 9 rocket engines. But then we stop in front of a large clean room, meant to be a place where engineers handle sensitive electronics and pieces of rockets. And behind the big glass wall... I see something. All right. So <laughs> this takes us to our uh, Dragon clean room. And right in front of us center stage is the cupola. The cupola uh, is a huge window that SpaceX is going to put on top of the Dragon capsule that's going to take Inspiration4 to space. Cupola is cool looking. I mean, it's, you know, three or four panes of like, uh, like, a, Mc like a McDonald's bubble window. Um, <laughs> In a cool way, in like a sci-fi way. <laughs> Just a play place. I've been thinking about the cupola for months. Honestly, 
It was kind of like spotting a celebrity when I saw it in person. Um, so this is what we're building for the Inspiration4 team. Uh, it's, it's new and custom just for the purposes of viewing Earth and the stars and to have that amazing experience up there. What really fascinates me about this window is that it's perfect for a tourist flight. Usually, SpaceX needs that part of the capsule to dock to the International Space Station. But in this case, that isn't necessary. They're just going to be floating in orbit. So why not replace the docking adapter with an incredible window that will allow for maybe the best view ever in space? And yet, changing a spacecraft from its original design, even slightly, can introduce risk. I was talking to Rob Perlman, a space historian, about this window and what it says about SpaceX as a company. The aesthetics sometimes win over the utility uh, on SpaceX hardware. I mean, we are not allowed to see the bathroom because it would ruin the aesthetic. The spacesuits are not bright orange, which would really help in recovery, but are white, bright white, because of the aesthetic. While I'm standing there in front of this cupola, I literally see the plastic wrap being taken off of the window. It has little tags that say, remove before flight. It's designed to be something that's purely for the pleasure of people going to space. But it's also a point of vulnerability, because SpaceX has never tested this window in space before. If NASA wanted to fly a window like this, it probably would take years of testing and engineering work before they ever considered sending a crew to space aboard a capsule with a cupola. And SpaceX built theirs in a matter of months. And nothing in space is easy, okay? There's no part of spacecraft design that is easy or risk-free. Wayne Hale, former NASA engineer. In an absolute technical sense, you could say, yeah, that bumps up the risk by some number past the decimal point on risk because, you know, it's glass and you've got to have seals and blah blah But in the bigger scheme of things, if it's done right and you test it right and you install it right, the difference in risk is negligible. The crew is really excited about the cupola. Every astronaut says that their favorite thing about going to space is looking back at Earth, the stargazing. The window will allow the crew to see outside of the capsule in a new way. They'll stick their heads into it and peer into space. Another crazy feature? What I didn't expect is I couldn't see, like, the glass. The effect, as Jared tells me, is that the viewer will feel suspended in space. Peering down at Earth and seeing the stars, it's exciting and flashy, but it's also kind of scary. It felt like something that you would have to adjust to. And that's why I kind of told the crew, like, let's not underestimate our body's reaction to this. As excited as he is, Jared feels like, as the commander, it's his job to worry about it. It is new. It's the largest window ever flown in space. I guess I'm just trying to put everything all the risk, um, you know, relative to other things, right? Like if there's a micrometeorite or space debris that's big enough to really, you know, cause a problem with the cupola, well, if it moves, you know, four feet down and it hits, you know, Dragon, it's probably just as much of a problem. (laughs) I was more on the, let's be more cautious on things like keeping the hatch closed when we don't need to be up in the cupola. Over the many months I've been talking to Jared, this window has come up a lot. 
He kept tabs on when the window would be tested. We met the uh, two engineers who were responsible for testing, putting it through its testing. And like all SpaceX engineers, they're like 28. And they're very cool and very well educated. And they said they're going to put it through hell. And I was like, do it. Um, you know, do whatever you can to break it and uh, let us know how it goes. Even though SpaceX is ultimately responsible for the four of them, this isn't a joyride for Jared. His sense of responsibility and his concerns have clearly made an impact on his crew. I call him commander. And he's like, call me, you can call me Jared. And I'm like, eh, you're, the, you're my commander. But for most of training, at least, SpaceX is in command. Much like the way they think about testing their rockets, by pushing them as close to the breaking point as they'll get. The company sees training in a similar way. Push people into tough situations so they can see how to handle stress and risk. That's in a minute. We're back. When I talked to Benji Reed, the head of human spaceflight, he told me SpaceX's goal for human space travel is to eventually make going to space like flying in an airplane. Strap in and you're off. We'd like to see aircraft-like, airline-like operations um, from a human spaceflight perspective. And so this chance to have our first um, commercial or all-civilian flight is awesome. This is a fascinating moment to see the training of civilians at SpaceX because it captures this awkward adolescent stage in the space industry. It's in between flying just professional astronauts and making flights fully accessible for regular people. But right now, flying to space requires a ton of training, especially for ordinary people. I'm gonna have Haley, if you want to tap Farfield pointing in the top right corner. I'm in a private training room upstairs, watching the Inspiration4 crew learn how to fly in the Dragon capsule. A white notification identifying that it was armed from the left display. This is where the crew has been spending a lot of time together the past few months. Haley and Chris are sitting in a cockpit simulator. Cyan is perched behind them, leaning over their shoulders. She has a 3D model of the Dragon capsule in her hand as she's watching the training. Jared is buzzing around, in and out of the room, taking work calls. And in front of them, a mock-up of the touch screens. They're almost like big iPads above their heads. Yep. The crew will use them to control the space capsule. And they're learning how to operate the screens. All right, so getting into the pages. Their trainer, Sarah Gillis, is the one teaching them how to use it. She'll also be one of the people talking to them from the ground while they're in space during the mission. And she's showing them various icons on the screen. Forward view, vehicle status, procedures, and setting. settings. Cyan and Jared have been through some of this training already. Cyan occasionally pipes in to emphasize an interesting point Sarah is making. That, those burns typically happen when you're going over the equator. Oh. They will happen at... It probably won't actually be over the equator. It will be at your perigee or relative apogee. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, at the perigee yeah. or apogee. Yeah. Yeah. Ever the teacher, Cyan is invested in Haley and Chris's learning as well as her own. You can't 
teach if you don't know the material. And so for me, teaching is a way for me to affirm that I know it or at least try to express what I know and and then get clarification for what I don't know. So it was fun to get this refresher and to be able to be like, okay, I understand these things, but here is, you know, where I've got some blank spots or I need some clarification. And that's what I was able to see. When all is going to plan during the mission, the Dragon capsule is designed to be mostly autonomous. So a lot of what the crew is learning here is how to monitor the health of the capsule and communicate with the ground. Yeah. And this is going to be really where the benign commands exist for updating volume levels, updating cabin lighting, stuff like that. But in space, not everything always goes to plan. So the crew also has to learn how to do more than just play with the lighting. In the event of a crisis in the capsule, they need to be able to handle it themselves. All right, so when something happens on the vehicle that's not expected, an alert is going to trip. Depending on the severity of the alert, it'll be a different tone. So you've already figured out how to silence it, which is great. Since the crew was selected less than six months ago, they've gone through a ton of preparation. Outside of SpaceX, Jared has planned bonus training exercises, like climbing Mount Rainier. Test things like mental toughness and being comfortable, being uncomfortable and all that. And then a whole lot of official training. They've been strapped into a centrifuge to experience what launch will feel like, gone through medical testing, like getting their blood drawn. And they've spent hours and hours reading the Dragon Manual and taking quizzes. I've got some studying to do. Reading space manuals, there's a lot of studying going into next week. We've received a big, like, just dump of materials. A handful of PDFs that that really are going to matter. We've gone from going, like, through a whole bunch of PowerPoint sleepy slides to, all right, now we're in training suits. In addition to all of this rote preparation, they also have to prepare for worst-case scenarios, like someone on the crew becoming a danger to themselves or others. There are zip ties and medication on board in case someone needs to be sedated. Nobody's going to snap that way, at least not that we've seen to date. This is literally just, okay, we have this equipment on board. Well, it's that less than 1% chance of somebody needing a little bit of extra support just to maintain the safety of the crew. This process is actually a lot like professional astronaut training, just on a wildly condensed timeline. There's a full-size Dragon capsule simulator in a room next door. This is where the crew would be spending a lot of time in the final weeks before launch. I stuck my head inside to take a look. You have four seats inside of this capsule that's what, like, you know, the size of a large bathroom? Um, and you have the tablets and sort of controls sort of above the seats. There's a tiny Baby Yoda attached up there. And then above us is the cupola, though you can't see it because the hatch is closed. I don't know, it seems like a pretty small space to have like four people for three days. The sim has windows, just like the real thing. Haley and Chris are going to have great views for the trip up. I have the window seat. I think I have a pretty good seat. Nice. Called shotgun. (laughs) Shotgun. It's a very powerful role. Jared and Cyan are going to sit in the middle, focusing on the monitors while Haley and Chris sit on the sides. After I take my head out of the dragon, 
I get a close look at the signatures on the outside of the capsule. Elon's signature's right there. Pretty much every crew that's been up in a dragon has signed the simulator. And the Inspiration4 crew will sign their names too. This capsule is where the capstone of their training takes place. They need to get through 30 grueling hours in that simulator as part of the longest simulated spaceflight in SpaceX history. And um, like a couple people were checking in with me from like SpaceX leadership, like, are you sure you're okay with this? Because um, no one's done it that long. You know, the longest uh, NASA sim was like, a, was like a half day. The crew embarked on that simulation in early August, months after I'd seen them in person at SpaceX. The mission controllers, even though they work for SpaceX, don't have any idea what's happening. It's all programmed by sim supervisors who like have this God's eye view and watch it unfold. And they actually were seeing things that they've never seen before. Chris told me the 30 hours started like many, many real launches. Oh, first thing that happens is we have a weather delay, which of course we have a weather delay in a simulated environment. It's a lot like when you board a plane and just end up sitting on a tarmac. They watch movies while strapped into their seats to pass the time. We had loaded on there Top Gun, Spaceballs, some other classic like space movies. Once they got into simulated space, they ate their first day meal, cold pizza. They're actually going to eat it when they go up to space. It's not the typical space fair. Another tourist touch. Yeah, I tell you what, cold pizza is way better than, you know, Luna bars in my pizza. Sorry, Luna, but I mean, just uh, any granola bar like that just uh, doesn't compare to like cold pizza, in my opinion. They practice taking their spacesuits on and off, and they try to get comfortable, but that'll be easier when they're actually weightless and able to move around the whole capsule. In the capsule, we're literally sleeping right next to each other. You're doing so many mental tasks and your physical exertion that even though it was not comfortable, I still fell asleep. Sleeping with your knees bent the whole time on like a quarter-inch hard rubber mat, it's not super fun. But, you know, they provided a couple mini pillows, simulator, of course. But I woke up neat and took a, took a couple doses of ibuprofen. They practiced everything in there. They had a media event in which Chris had to pretend to vomit, and Haley quickly took over. Right, just like everything else. We're going to make this the most awful dragon capsule you've ever spent time in, have everything break, and none of that will really happen. Jared told me SpaceX really did give the crew a worst-case scenario toward the end of the simulation. As the 30 hours progressed, system breakdowns started to multiply. There were so many failures because every shift had to be exercised. Here's just some of what happened. As the Dragon was leaving orbit, three of the capsule's computers failed, the crew couldn't communicate with the ground, and the parachutes wouldn't deploy. So now um, you're blind, you can't talk, and there's no way for the chutes to come out. There's also no way for Dragon to stabilize itself during essentially a hypersonic reentry. The Dragon no longer knew where it was in space. It couldn't control the deorbit burn, and the crew then realized that the capsule was nearly a continent away from where it was supposed to splash down. And it's at that moment, the crew in the capsule and the team in mission control realized just how bad this scenario was. Like, it felt very real. Like, you're living in it for 30 hours. The last 45 minutes, like, there was awareness from us in the capsule 
and them on the ground that there is like a chance that this might not be actually a survivable situation. It was high intensity all the way through re-entry and um, the last 10 minutes especially where it was like, are we gonna be debriefing as, well, everybody did as good as they could and this is how it played out or did it all work out very Apollo 13-esque where it hung together and, and, it, and it, did, it did make it. The crew walked out, smiling. They'd made it through. When I caught up with the crew at SpaceX this summer, some of them were still juggling their full-time jobs and other commitments as they did this intensive training. But by the end of the summer, almost all of them had to step back from work and focus nearly full-time on this training. What that means is that they're prioritizing training the way professional astronauts do. There was one moment at SpaceX that really gave me chills. Sarah, their trainer, practiced what she was going to say to the crew once they made it to orbit. I'm calling each of you, and then you're going to respond. And then they responded. So in this instance... Commander, loud and clear. Pilot, loud and clear. MS-1, loud and clear. MS-2, loud and clear. And seeing them at SpaceX, I started to realize that by the end of their training, these four amateurs will have a lot more in common with professional astronauts than they do with an ordinary person off the street. Chris, Haley, Jared, and Cyan are exceptional. They've become true astronauts in their own right. Next time, the Inspiration4 crew confronts what it means to take this risk and leave their loved ones behind. They rolled in the TV to show the news of the day going on, and it was when the Challenger accident had happened. I need him back safe and sound. This is amazing for him, but for me, like, there is a fear. There's risk. How It Happened, The Next Astronauts is reported and produced by Amy Padula, Naomi Shaven, Alice Wilder, and me. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Mixing, sound design, and music supervision by Alex Sugiera. Original music by Michael Hampf. Fact-checking and research by Jacob Knudsen. Allison Snyder is a managing editor and my editor at Axios. And Sarah Kehalani-Gu is our executive editor. Special thanks to Axios co-founders, Mike Allen, Jim Vandehei, and Roy Schwartz. I'm Miriam Kramer. Thanks for listening.